Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, we're interviewing John McCain and asking the senator what he makes of Donald Trump's leadership. Is he mercurial? Yes. Is he predictable? No. And do we want him to do tweets about Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings? No. Mr. McCain was the Republican presidential candidate in 2008, and nowadays he's chairman of the Senate's powerful Armed Services Committee. Since last year's election, he's directed his fire at Donald Trump's freewheeling approach to foreign policy, and sometimes at the man himself. We'll be hearing more about that in a moment. Personal relations between the two men have been fraught since Mr. Trump attacked the senator's war record in Vietnam. I like people that weren't captured, OK? I hate to tell you. Do you He's agree with that? He's a war hero because he was captured. But Mr. McCain doesn't give up easily on his political battles. And when I caught up with him in his office at the Senate this week, the first subject on our minds was the triggering of the so-called nuclear option. It's a controversial rule change that would override Democrat objections to Mr. Trump's first nomination to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch. Back in 2011, the Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid used his power to constrain Democrat objections to Republican measures. Now the boot is on the other foot. So I started by asking Senator McCain whether this latest tussle signals a further unwinding of bipartisanship and why he's decided to back a rule change when he previously resisted. I think it's a clear sign that we do not have a level of bipartisanship that we had some years ago. And the interesting thing about this one is that Republican leaders condemned us as fiercely as possible when Harry Reid was doing it, and now it's the same Republican leadership that is pushing it and the same Democrat leadership that refuses to allow any of its members to sit down and do serious negotiations the way we used to. But in effect, you're now supporting this nuclear option to get Gorsuch through. Isn't there a bit of a contradiction but, there with some of the previous positions? No, I think, I think there's two different issues here. One is whether Gorsuch should be a member of the United States Supreme Court or not. And the other was uh, whether we could reach a bipartisan agreement to not destroy the nuclear option. I've lost the battle on the nuclear option. You've it lost it? Oh, yes. Why did you lose it? Because because there's a much greater degree of partisanship. There is a lack of uh, COMITY amongst uh, Republicans and Democrats. And frankly, a lot of it is driven by outside influences which drive people to the extremes. Outside influences such as? Such as different organizations that are very active and thanks to our Supreme Court decision on Citizens United, money flows in unprecedented proportions in these so-called outside independent expenditures, which is a laugh. Are you going to name some names there? 
Well, I mean, there's there's a myriad of them on both sides. I mean, you could, uh, and they and they have different names, and they assume different names with different campaigns. But Do you think we've all, just lost this bipartisanship battle, and that we're maybe harking that politics is now different in the U.S. and we need to accept it? You feel that something's changed in your world? I feel the partisanship is at an all-time high. The anger and bitterness that characterize the results of the last presidential election has been attenuated and affected here. And there's, unfortunately, approval ratings of Congress are down around in the teens, and the approval rate of the, con- of the president is in the 30s. So uh, obviously Americans are not very happy with business as it's conducted here in our nation's capital. So something needs to change, but the direction of travel, I'm going to move to, to foreign affairs now, but in a way the prism is, is a, it reflects the same sort of process. Radical changes seem to be underway. You've spoken yourself about aspects of Russia reminding you of, of the Cold War. We seem to be seeing a shift on Syria from a commitment from Washington to try to get Bashar Assad out of power. What is at stake here for America if we continue on this path? Well, one thing that's at stake, which is of uh, immense value to me, is a moral high ground for all of the last century, which was called the American century. We stood up for people who were struggling for freedom and democracy and condemned and took what action we could when their atrocities took place. My God, uh, anyone who has seen the pictures that were smuggled out by Caesar is appalled and so we've lost credibility, and we lost an enormous amount of that under Barack Obama, who decided that leading from behind was the role for America. So what's at stake, what, is, what has happened here, is we've lost our moral authority, the shining city on the hill, and we have become transactional, and we have failed to live up to our ideals and our goals for all human beings. Our declaration that all men, all, are created equal. Didn't just say Americans, endowed with certain inalienable rights. So we've lost that moral high ground. So I want to make one thing clear. I'm not advocating sending the Marines to every brush fire. I am saying that we need to to stake out a ground and a position of the United States in the world that was best articulated by Ronald Reagan, who was once described by Margaret Thatcher that he won the Cold War without firing a shot. Not so easy in subsequent conflicts, however. And one of the things I wanted to put to you was that you'd been relatively supportive of Rex Tillerson. At least you said, you know, this man seems sensible. I'm paraphrasing here. And then actually now we seem to be hearing a slightly different tone. You've heard Rex Tillerson, one of the people suggesting that perhaps we just let Syria be. Has your view changed, Mr. Tillerson? I was skeptical about uh, Mr. Tillerson because of his background and his relationship with Vladimir Putin. I voted for him after two meetings uh, with him. But to somehow make a statement that the Syrian people will determine their own future themselves, I mean, that that's one of the most unusual depictions of the facts on the ground that I've ever heard of. What about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard? What about the Russians? What about uh, Hezbollah? 
Well, what all, if it were not for these outside influences, Bashar Assad would be uh, residing in some other place, I hope, in hell. But he's been propped up by all these outside influences, and one of the great errors in American history was when the President of the United States, leader of the free world, says, uh, if they cross a red line, we will act, and then doesn't. That's sent a message that's reverberated around the globe. Some people think this retreat from global affairs is actually what's called for, partly because of Iraq, but just a general feeling that the world is complex, it's difficult, abroad is just too much of a difficult place, America gets it wrong a lot. What is wrong fundamentally with saying we didn't handle Iraq correctly, we got ourselves into some tangles preaching to Moscow, Putin doesn't listen anyway, why not be transactional? Well, transactional is one thing. There's always room for negotiations. Again, Ronald Reagan certainly negotiated. But there's also an absence of leadership on the world stage. Nature abhors a vacuum. Barack Obama created vacuums. Look at the world in January of 2009 and look at the world today. You will find a world in chaos, 6 million refugees, 400,000 killed, Chinese asserting sovereignty over international waters, uh, Russia now established in the Middle East like they haven't been since 1973. The list goes on and on and on. And when America doesn't lead, then bad things happen. You're pushing for a, a bigger American military budget, and yet you seem to be pushing for that at a time when America is, is retreating from conflicts or even from military presence that don't involve fighting. Is there a contradiction there? And, and what are you actually hoping to achieve by it? Well, the defense budget shrank by some 21% in the last eight years, and the world has become more dangerous. I don't think those are indisputable facts. And right now, if we, if we continue on the path we're on, the situation will worsen rather dramatically. We now have two-thirds of our frontline aircraft that are not flying for lack of parts. Two of our 26 brigade combat teams are at the highest level of readiness. Our pilots are flying less hours a month than Russian and Chinese counterparts are. We're a 1,000 pilots short. Do you think Donald Trump will listen to this critique or events will force him to listen to this critique over time? I believe he has. He's committed to rebuilding the military. That was he campaigned on that, and he surrounded himself with the strongest national security team that I've seen, and I know that he respects them. So, I'm very hopeful that but we he just lost a national security advisor in record time. I'm talking about the team that are around him now, Mattis. Do so you uh, still have Mc faith McMaster. that that can? Oh, they're can very work strong. Well. I've I've known them for years. They're very strong, and they've been in the fire of battle, tempered by the fire of battle, and they are great leaders. So the president shows a lot of respect for military, and I'm guardedly optimistic that he will listen to them and, frankly, not to the isolationist message that has been whispered in his other ear. On the whole, are you more optimistic or pessimistic uh, than when Donald Trump took office? I am more pessimist, excuse me, more optimistic because of the team that he has assembled around him. I couldn't have assembled a better team if he'd asked me to do it myself. But if it's such a great team, and we've got, on the one hand, 
a mess on Russia, whichever way you look at this wiretapping and the, the mm-hmm. accusations flying through. Mm-hmm. You've said yourself we need a bipartisan yeah. approach to getting to the bottom of this. You're but, not likely to get it. How, how can you be so optimistic? I separate. I separate. I'm not saying I'm optimistic. I am optimistic about national security issues. The Russia issue, as I've said before, it's a centipede. And every day or two, there's going to be another shoe that drops. Look at today, the Seychelles, meetings in the Seychelles. Who, you know, if you wrote a novel, nobody would read it. I wondered if you'd been watching The Americans and whether it reminded you a bit of the sort of daring do of the Cold War. <laughs> Our homeland. You're a homeland man, right? Yeah, homeland. There are always some plots in there everywhere, including the CIA. I enjoy both, by the way. What approach constructively would you take to Russia? We've had that terrible bombing in St. Petersburg this week. We're now at that point when it, it's so difficult to have even the old sort of constructive but watchful relationship with Russia between Moscow and Washington. Any hopes of rebooting that seem to now skittle off into being something entirely different about influence-taking, uh, meddling in the election. What is the sensible way for Donald Trump to deal with Russia? What should he ask for? Is peace through strength and... Vladimir Putin is an old KGB colonel. He respects he respects strength, and if he v- re- believes that much of his adventurism uh, is not worth the price, then he won't do it. He's the ultimate pragmatist. He's a gangster and a thug and a pragmatist. He's not an ideologue. He's a gangster. He's an, sure he is. Sure he is. Why Did is you see, Putin just, a gangster? Well, he just had somebody thrown out of a fourth-story window. Just had another uh, uh, dissident uh, shot. You're referring to the lawyer. Boris Nemtsov. Just to be clear, you're referring to the lawyer in the Magnitsky case. Uh, And you believe that Putin directly was concerned with that? Oh, no, I think it was an act of God. Is Boris Nemtsov murdered in the shadow of the Kremlin? Do you think that happens and and there's no record of it? Do you think that that, that's a, a, a natural phenomena? Of course not. But um, uh, there's a difference between saying these terrible things happen and that Vladimir Putin knew about them. Is that what you're saying? uh, He or one of his henchmen, he's responsible. He's the leader of the country. Should I blame it on the thug that pulled the trigger that blew Boris Nepsov's brains out? Uh, I mean, uh, so, look, he's a thug. He's an old KGB agent that is brilliant. It is brilliant. And he has played a very weak hand. The world's 15th largest economy, and he's played a weak hand with incredible skill. But he's had a willing, he had a willing compliant in Barack Obama. Oh, hang on. Barack Obama's the willing compliant? But it's Donald Trump who's in the firing line now about Russian influence. Now, but where they are now, Donald Trump was not in charge when Georgia was invaded. Donald Trump was not in charge when Ukraine, in violation of the Budapest Agreement, was absorbed. Donald Trump was not in uh, when eastern Ukraine is taken by, quote, separatists. The list goes on and on. That didn't happen on Donald Trump's watch. That's true, but we are where we are. The president is in the White House. So what is, you said peace through strength. What would you do? Would you actually actively now move on Ukraine or Crimea or is that past gone? I would do simple things like giving the Ukrainians lethal defensive weapons to defend themselves. Why not? Uh, it's separatist tanks, Russian tanks that are in their territory. Why shouldn't we give them javelin? 
Right now, they have nothing to defend against those tanks. Certainly, I would do that. I would help them militarily. I would insist on further, further reforms in Ukraine. There's still problems with, with corruption. I would uh, pour money and effort and man and woman power into the cyber issue. After all, he tried to affect the outcome of our election. So there's a whole lot of things we can do. Will we get to the bottom of that? Russian influence Someday, in the election? Someday, sure. But Someday. this is a major scandal that will go on for a long time. There will be new revelations every few days. I've seen this movie before. Do you think it endangers President Trump's tenure in the White House? I don't know. It depends on what the outcome is. I, I, I'm not deeming anyone guilty of anything until we get all the information. For me to judge Do you, do you think President the president Trump, was foolish in his dealings with the Russians? I don't know what his dealings were. He denies having any. But we continue to see information about Russian connection. But I think we need to get the whole story before we make a judgment. How are your relations with President Trump? When did you last speak? They're pretty, actually, they're better than you might think. We had a nice conversation the other night at the White House with all the senators who were over there. And I've been invited to go to dinner with him in a couple of weeks. You're going down to Mar-a-Lago, which seems to now be the, the new home of American foreign policy broking. Well, uh, I know that he spends a lot of time now with his national security advisor. He has a lot of respect for him and Mattis and others. So, but there's no doubt that what you keep getting at with these almost repeated questions is, is he mercurial? Yes. Is he predictable? No. And do we want him to uh, do tweets about Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings? No. So... I'm not defending him and this tweet storms that seems to emanate at the early hours of the morning. But I do say that people that are around him, I believe he respects them, and I believe he will respect their advice and judgment. And he has a hell of a mess of the last eight years to clean up. I'm sometimes intrigued at all of this, this criticism about Donald Trump when we've just had the worst eight years as far as national security is concerned uh, since the 1930s. I was going to try, I hope not to, repeat the question, <laughs> okay. which is a fair, right. no a fair comeback no on Her Majesty's Press here. Uh, but this, the smartest thing, to, to ask you what you thought the smartest thing and the dumbest thing was that Donald Trump had done, I guess you could say smart. I think you feel that you've kind of answered talking about his team. Uh, but by all means, smartest and dumbest things he's done. Oh, I don't know. I think the tweeting is not smart because I think it... It diverts attention onto issues that are not presidential. For example, criticizing Arnold Schwarzenegger. That, that's a waste of his time and ours. And he said he wouldn't be president without social media, so maybe he yeah, feels maybe. he gained I think by that's it. entirely possible. What about Britain and Brexit? I mean, it, we just triggered Article 50. Does this matter here in Washington? Does it change the way you're very you know, long-standing friend of Britain? You have deep ties there. Does it? You think it matters to to the broader picture where no, we sit in the relationship? I don't think it matters so much in our relationship, but I think it's the same attitude that was reflected in the passage of Brexit as the presidential campaign. Angry people whose lives have not been improved that blame foreign trade or foreign job losses to foreign manufacturing, etc. I think it's the same syndrome. It's the same syndrome that uh, we see in some countries, in, by, 
particularly in Eastern Europe, where they opt for a virtual dictatorship because of their anger and dissatisfaction with business as usual. There's a wave uh, that's reminiscent of the 1930s of isolationism, um, quote, America first. You know, when they say America first, that was the exact same words of the, of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act supporters in the 1930s. History doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes. But elites have somehow got onto the different. I mean, even if one's over-indexing a bit about Brexit and, and Donald Trump, which is, is possible, lots of quite reasonable people who were not at the bottom of the pile in terms of their uh, position in society voted for Brexit. What is it that we've got wrong as, I won't use the phrase liberal elites, you probably don't feel you're in a liberal elite, but you are part of... Let me an give you an example. And one of the reasons why the surprise was that all of these people who didn't have jobs, who didn't have futures, who believed that their lives and small business people's lives were burdened by regulation after regulation after regulation... What was it, Brexit? They didn't like being told uh, what kind of frying pan they should use uh, by somebody who, an edict from Brussels. So a lot of anger about the over-regulation of people's lives that came from what they didn't view was their elected government, okay? And so this reaction that we saw, particularly in the, in the, Suburb, uh, urban areas uh, in the, the the countryside, the the uh, less populated areas, uh, less prosperous areas of America, that was totally uns- unsuspected. People that had voted Democrats all their lives, who were blue collar workers, decided that they'd had enough. They'd had enough of government regulation. They'd had enough of a stifled uh, lifestyle with no future. And so I think that part of that is similar to some of the exhibited preferences of the British people when they voted to leave the EU. Perplexing picture, isn't it, when you come to Washington and you find you as one of the best-known Republican senators and the Republican Party so divided about having a Republican in in the White House – do you feel that this situation is going to get more chaotic, or do you think that in the end the Republican Party will have to rally in some way around <clears throat> Donald Trump to get through these four years and make something of it for America? Well, we need to show some accomplishments, and uh, I, I strongly believe that we should bring that $2.5 trillion that's parked overseas home and invested in infrastructure, something easy like that, or not so easy, but something that's doable uh, like that. But uh, when we talk about the problems within the Republican Party, the Democrat Party is moribund. I mean, they just lost, and they have, all they can do is be anti-Trump. I haven't seen anything constructive come out of the Democrat leadership since we've been in session. Name one. A two-term Donald Trump presidency, not out of the question as far as you're concerned. I think we're, this is the earliest stages of, of his presidency and to make uh, judgments on whether a president is going to be there for two terms is, uh, defies the word premature. I wish him well. I hope he learns. And uh, I will continue not so much in behalf of the Republican Party, but in behalf of this country. We have more national security challenges we've had since the end of the Cold War and more diverse than at any time since the end of World War II. And we need to have us work together to defend this country. It's possible 
It didn't happen, but it's possible that, that the Russians could have dictated the results of our presidential election. That should scare anybody. And so we have a lot of work to do that, uh, on national security. What about these six million refugees? What, what about the fact that the South China Sea, the Chinese someday soon will declare those as sovereign parts of China? And they'll require us to file flight plans to fly over them. I mean, this is a dangerous world. And there are people that have left Raqqa that they are telling, get to the United States of America and commit an act of terror. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm a big fan of The Economist. And uh, please remember the words of Chairman Mao, who said, it's always darkest before it's totally black. A glimmer of humor there from Senator John McCain on America's global outlook. And if you've any thoughts on that Senate standoff this week or any of the other topics raised in our interview, please do get in touch, radio at economist.com or at Economist Radio. And that's all for this week. Do join us again on The Economist Asks. In Washington, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.